Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about literary management with Daniela Garcia Bruchek, who's a manager at Circle of Confusion as well as a Liam Neeson enthusiast. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into some questions. So, Daniela, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? How'd you end up in LA? What kind of jobs were you working on your way up to where you currently are? Okay, my origin story. Yes. Um, superhero origin story. Yes. Not superhero, supervillain. Uh, <laughs> I, I play the bad guy as a literary manager. Um, I'm originally from Venezuela, and I grew up in Southeast Asia. I moved to the United States in 2002 and went to a boarding school, and then in boarding school realized like the common denominator is film and TV no matter where you are in the world. I really wanted to go to NYU, and I was fortunate enough to get in. But when I got in, there was a program called the Liberal Studies Program that was essentially this like probation program. They let in the top 10% of the people they reject into this program as oh, wow. a means to determine whether they're NYU quality. So you had sort of these probationary terms. When I was there, it sort of reaffirmed my passion for storytelling and for creators. And so I studied film production and minored in producing. My professional history before I moved to Los Angeles, I interned at a consulting firm as a video intern where I was editing and shooting videos for the products that they were marketing to the companies that had hired them. I interned for a music video production company and also for a fashion director. And then I worked for Drake Duramis when he was in production for Breathe In. And I also (laughs) interned for Darren Aronofsky when he was in pre-production for Noah. And during my time interning for Darren Aronofsky, I realized that I needed to move to Los Angeles. Working for auteurs was very... It opened my mind to the reality that if you're an auteur, you have ownership, but any other commercial director or commercial talent needed representation, I think, to get their career forward. And I wanted a better understanding of what that was. I moved to Los Angeles six months before I had my diploma. I realized that I didn't want to graduate with a class of a thousand people chasing after the same types of jobs. And that was August of 2012. I could not find a job, even with my experience and my resume of five internships at pretty you know, I'd like to think high-end places. So I went to Craigslist. (laughs) (laughs) Like one does. Yeah, like like one does after two weeks of living here unemployed. I did think that I wanted to be a writer. And now uh, in hindsight, I realized like I did not have the discipline that writers require to survive, I think, in this industry. And the fact that I recognize that, I applaud myself where I was just like, you know what? I can live without writing. This is not my job. But... I saw a value in writing and storytelling, but Craigslist did not leave me immediately to the path of working at Circle of Confusion. Uh, (laughs) They don't just advertise on on (laughs) Craigslist? No, uh, there was an advertisement for a uh, reality producer who essentially was running an assistant boot camp. Learn how to roll calls, learn how to do all the things that Hollywood assistants need to know how to do in order to just get your foot in the door. Because my resume was great, but I did not know how to roll calls. Again, it's like a glorified secretary, but there is a a skill and I think a level of efficiency that exists when you know how to do it and do it well. So I 
took the interview in this uh this back entrance to this building in culver city which at the time i did not know what culver city was <laughs> i told my mom the location and uh i was like if i don't come out this is where i am <laughs> like you don't care for me the reality producer, his name is Zig Gautier. He doesn't have this program anymore, but it was called Red Varden. And he had 30 interns working for him, really focused in reality casting and reality production. And it was a crash course in being an assistant. And he was very much of these are the expectations for you as you enter into Hollywood. It was really cool to just see the different walks of life and what brought people to that space. And he said, work for me for three months. And when I feel you're ready, I'll plug you into a, a job opportunity. Three months go by and he delivers on his promise. I get a job interview at Circle of Confusion working for the two in-house producers. It was me and five of my friends up for the job. And, you know, I was very fortunate to get the job. And I was really excited because I thought, look, if I'm not going to be a writer, what I wanted to do was produce. And what I was really excited by was the opportunity to make things. And working for a producer, essentially, that's their job is uh, how do you allow a writer to see their vision come to life? And this is uh, during a period where I'm not sure what representation is. I see hints of it. And because I was in the production department at Circle of Confusion, I could hear conversations about representation, but I didn't fully understand what it was. I worked for the two in-house producers for about a year and a half. We made a small movie called Spare Parts. It's funny that we're having this conversation now because it is about the poster child for the Dream Act mm. and the underwater wow. robotics team. It's based on a Wired article that Josh Davis wrote. And it was a really special movie. I was really proud to be a part of it, but I had this crisis. I was like, oh my goodness, making a movie is hard. It's a miracle to get it done and you have to hustle. And I was looking at my job trajectory and career trajectory and I was like, I could work for these people for forever. And I know I'm good at my job and I can give notes and that's great. But I thought, when am I gonna get promoted? When am I gonna be able to produce, go to set? So I thought that going to a feature studio was going to be the solution to my crisis of like being impatient <laughs> feature studio yeah um i went to a studio i went to mgm and i had a very short stint there i worked there for three months and it is a different style working for the buyer it is an incoming call business i think people think okay what movies is the studio going to make and mgm has a remarkable library uh in the three months that i was there ryan coogler was developing creed and they were about to figure out the strategy for was it skyfall or specter one of the bond movies and i just was like okay i'm a little bored i'm bored <laughs> i miss working with creative people and like there are, there is a creative component to working at the studio but the people who were calling my boss were advocating these new voices that my boss needed to know and also acting as the bodyguard for the client when maybe a meeting didn't go well. They'd call and try to remedy that situation. I was like, I like the, what they're talking about more than what my boss is saying because also the buyers are finding every single way to say no in terms of, oh, sorry, we're not gonna take on the spec because of X, Y, Z, or we don't wanna work with this writer because we have another writer that we already have a relationship with. I was just like, oh, no is like my least favorite word. I wanna say yes, I wanna say, how do we do this? I like, and I continue to have that attitude of like, I'm a yes lady. Um, <laughs> and what I loved about producing, right? And so uh, it's just kind of like, let's figure this out. If it's an unconventional way, let's do it. So I quit my job after three months and I kind of took a hard look at myself and I was like, look, 
I'm impatient for producing and producing also is a project focused career. But what I loved was the idea of creator focused. And so I called my old boss at Circle, told him my crisis, and he goes, you should consider management. And also, I was like, God knows you would never find me in an agency unless I'm trying to get a client <laughs> signed at an agency. Yeah. There's a particular person that thrives in that environment. But I really wanted to give clients the attention that they needed and management, you know, there are such smaller rosters. So like, six to 12, 12 to 20, but never the list of 100. And a lot of young agents are servicing the roster that the entire company has. So I come back to Circle and I work for two managers and I just, I'm addicted to what they're doing. I was like, and that's what I love about Hollywood is it's an, as an apprenticeship program, you end up learning from your bosses, whether it's something that you want to do or whether you don't want to do it. And so I rose up the ranks at Circle and that was in August 2014. I came back to the company after six months in February 2015. I got promoted to coordinator and started working for one of the partners. And then after a year, they promoted me to manager. So yeah, that was February 2016. I've been a literary manager ever since. Uh, and it's awesome. Lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> happily ever after. Continue to be living happily ever after. So it's been awesome. Awesome. That's a wild ride. Yeah, it is. Very circuitous. Yeah, it's a lot of people's careers. It seems yeah. to take a, a long track until you finally find what's right for you. Right, right. Yeah. So you're now a manager at Circle of Confusion. Uh, what do you feel are sort of the key differences between being a literary manager and an agent? So I mentioned this before about kind of the bandwidth and, you know, agents. I like to think of them as the deal people, the money people. They are legally allowed to make deals, whereas managers are not. Managers have the ability to produce uh, with agents. It's a considered a conflict of interest. And managers, you know, they're thinking very much long term. Oftentimes we sign people who we know aren't going to be making money for a little bit of time. Agents, I think when they, if they really believe in a client that's not making money, that's great. But oftentimes they're like, how can I work for this person and find that job for them? And that's why the roster for managers tends to be smaller because there's a lot of attention and detail dedicated to curating a strategy for building out their career. And that means developing scripts, reading multiple drafts, I would say I read five drafts for every draft that an agent reads. Um, and also, you know, it's just about making sure that they feel prepared and informed and giving them that attention. And the agents just don't have that bandwidth. And how do you actually find your clients? How did you kind of, did you have anyone who you were working with before you got promoted there? Or did you just set out and start finding people as soon as you got the job? Off the record, when I was a coordinator, I was very much seeing talented people that I wanted to work with, that I believed in, that reflected my taste. As I've been doing this for a while, I love referrals because this is so much a networking business. When people know my taste and they discover someone that they think would work well with me or I would work well with them, that's what excites me because it's just kind of like, wow, I very much driven to support women and people of color. And so when people understand what I really mean by that and they send me people with those sensibilities, it's very exciting, this like synergy that we have. But 
part of the fun is the hunt. Where can I go in undiscovered places? Oh, this sounds like I'm preying upon like talented people. <laughs> I'm lo- I'm looking for you. The most dangerous game. <laughs> yes, exactly. You will not survive. Um, no, you will thrive if you know we work well together. But it's that just that idea of like, where are these people who are finding places for their stories to live? Whether it's web series, podcasts, plays. Just kind of like unconventional storytelling, too, is really exciting. And I just look everywhere, either at the schools or online on Vimeo and YouTube, just to see what when you're a fan of something and then you're like, oh, they don't have representation. It's a really awesome feeling to be like, can we work together? Uh, (laughs) It's like a rush. Yes, I know. It's such an adrenaline rush. So, yeah, for the most part, it's like a very eclectic and diverse way of looking for new clients. Do you sort of have a, a bare minimum either of samples or experience that you're looking for in a new client? Often, I really like the potential clients who know how to lead the conversation. They have one fantastic sample. There's a reflection of their voice and of their perspective. How do they view storytelling and how do they view sort of their agenda as a writer? And then, you know, I really... I enjoy the writers that are constantly writing, but understand that maybe they can't do everything. And so that way we can have a conversation of what is that strategy to do it all? For instance, I signed these comedy writers and they said, we'd really love to write in drama. How do we transition you into that? But they didn't go, here's 50 scripts, 25 comedy, 25 drama, you know, make of it what you will. It was, let's lead with their strength, which was comedy, and then have a conversation of, you know, are you going to be someone that supports our vision to do both? I love the hustler writers who are kind of don't let other people get in their way. But I also like the writers that are open to, you know, just having a discourse of this is still a business. So oftentimes, if they're like, this is my passion project, and I want to go out to market with this, I often say, wait a second, you know, like if this is your passion project and you're just starting your career, it'll be a rarity if this gets made immediately. So how do we like protect your vision, protect your goals and build into that? And you mentioned you were looking uh, kind of around at schools and online and everything. Do you pay attention to screenplay competitions? I feel like a lot of young writers want to know that question. Are managers really looking at these results? And if so, which ones? Oh, yes. I definitely judge the competitions. It's funny because oftentimes I'll sign people who are quarterfinalists or, you know, they might not end up being the winners. The competitions are hard because it's very subjective, right? Like, how can you determine the top 10 scripts? Because it's such an eclectic bunch. You have these specific competitions that are either horror or comedy or under the umbrella of like Austin, where they're all categorized. And I think that makes it very helpful for representatives to be like, well, my taste is more inclined in comedy or in sci-fi thriller and reading within those categories. So I love looking for potential clients within the competitions. And I think if you're looking for representation, that's the best place to go. But if you have representation, I would say there's no point in entering a competition unless there's a huge amount of money at the end of like, you know, it's not just a little certificate that said that you won, (laughs) you know, Joe Schmo's competition. But with the nickels, it's like that is a fat check. So go for it. Don't get don't I don't let me stop you. So absolutely, yeah. that's the real prize of a lot of the competitions is getting that attention and finding representation, in the mm-hmm. first connections over just the money. Yeah, for sure. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. How would you define 
a writer's voice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's this buzzy word that representatives use. And for me, it's been a challenge to really define voice. So I apologize to you, the listeners, because I know that's the last thing you want to hear. But it's not <laughs> an exact formula. But I would say that's the sort of thing that on the page, beyond story, I can figure out the kind of person you are. I, I will use the case study of Diablo Cody and Juno. You see that movie or you read that script and you're like, this person has a remarkable perspective. And even though that might not be her personal story, you want to get to know the writer behind that narrative. Oftentimes I'll read these scripts that feel very run of the mill, but there's a tone about the way that they're saying it. that I'm like, I need to meet this person. This isn't just your, you know, kidnapped talking about Liam Neeson enthusiasts, <laughs> you know, like if someone wrote like a taken, but there's an edge about it, or there's uh, sort of this texture to it that I go, wow, this person has lived through some real bleep um, <laughs> or they've just, there's sensibility about them. That's what I would define voice as that you're using your writing to introduce yourself without talking about yourself. So sort of like your brand, so to speak. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But then because people are so eclectic in and of themselves, right? You know, you don't live out just one story every day. I understand that you're, the stories that you tell are going to be eclectic too. And it's the way that you tell them that I think is going to draw people in. Uh, we're at a time right now where our tours are really thriving. And that comes, I think, too, from like the Woody Allen era and the Scorsese era of these people who have their fingerprints and thumbprints all over their material. And writers now, especially in television, can have ownership. And you think of Matthew Weiner and Vince Gilligan and um, Genji Cohan and Le Lena Dunham. It's like you recognize their shows and their writing, but the Darren Stars and the Lena Dunhams, they're, people would argue, are they telling the same story? But they're so different because of the perspectives that they're infusing into it. Yeah. It's kind of like Aaron Sorkin in a way. Yes. So speaking of kind of brand, as a manager, how do you find that niche for your clients and that, especially with developmental clients you're taking on, you're really trying to, to get them to break in and get people to notice them. How do you promote them? Ooh. Oh, my goodness. I don't like the word brand, but I know it's necessary, right? Because you think of just the staples of, especially in television, of like, what is your brand and why are you the person to tell this story that maybe we can get someone else to tell? And I think in part, it comes with that great sample because when I introduce clients out into the world, I don't lead with, sometimes I lead with their personal story, but if it's not on the page and it's not an exciting sample, the conversation ends there. I could be like, I represent this like really cool like ninja. And then <laughs> they write like a multicam comedy that anyone could have written. And it's just like, well, this ninja person sounds great, but I don't like their writing. I don't want to waste my time. And so oftentimes I'm just like, are you writing the kind of stories that are going to excite people to want to meet you? And if you're not, I think at that point, I'm not representing that person. So if you're looking for representation, you feel like this is what I think people want to see. But is that the story you want to be telling? Don't try to follow trends. Try to s either set the trend or go against the grain because there's so much clutter out there that there's not enough time to read everything. So I think that that's where I'm like the brand for my clients tends to be disruptive already. Mm -hmm. And that's what's exciting me about representing them to tell other people that it's like this is someone you need to know because they're going to clutter bust. Yeah. Is that what you're looking for when you are reading these referrals and this material that's coming your way? A hundred percent. 
a hundred percent where I'm just like, is this genre bending? Is this weird and quirky and bizarre? Or how dark is this person getting where they're going outside of their comfort zone? And as a result, you're put outside of your own. And that's what's so exciting to me. So on a pure surface level, is it really based on sort of the log line and how they're selling, so to speak, the, the material? Yeah, sometimes it's log line. But then other times it's like you'll have a conventional log line. And then I'm just like, I start reading it, right? There's a script I represent that it's a, you know, con woman story, which I'm addicted to con stories. So I'm like, I'll read anything. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I get sucked into the page. So sometimes the logline can be deceiving. But if a writer knows how to present themselves, it's even in the presentation that you're like, I need to read their sample. But I would say like with warning, like don't be too crazy because oftentimes that can be misleading. Speaking of crazy, do you kind of read and respond to cold queries? And, uh, <laughs> and what, what is it about them that ever gets you to actually say, yes, I'll take a look at this if, if you do? Yes, I, I love queries because there's something to be said about someone who is taking that chance. But the queries I respond to is there's a level of sincerity it's like, hi, like, I know I'm taking time out of your day. Or, you know, anytime someone says, I listened to a podcast that you were on that you talked about XYZ, I think that I have that sample. There are some queries where I can just tell they're copying and pasting and there's nothing special. Like they're, they're desperate for representation. So everyone in my office is getting the same letter and it's just the name is different. And I'm just like, well, I don't feel special. I don't want to represent you. You know, it is, there's an ego involved, I think too, in my job. And any good representative is like, I have, I or would like to think that I have good taste. And if you want to be my client, you should know what my taste is. So I'm also flattered when people know who my clients are or feel like their sensibility is shared in that way. The, the craziest queries are always when people are so demanding, like entitled to, hey, I want to get on the phone with you on Thursday. I'm going to send you material today. And I'm like, that's really disrespectful. Yeah. yeah. And that ha- happens a lot where someone where I they follow up with me a week later and they're just like, haven't you gotten to my script yet? And I'm like, that's wow. really disrespectful. Like if I came into your house and was like, I don't know what the metaphor is. <laughs> Make me some dinner. Like, <laughs> right, right. Oh, Why isn't it ready gosh. yet? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Why is your place a mess? I thought that, you know, you were expecting me. And I'm just like, who are you people? <laughs> Get and out. then they go, I had someone call me and was like, I'm a Nichols quarter finalist and you owe me a read. And then I said, I'm so sorry, but like, this is not how this works. I have Aww. clients that I need to read and I have potential clients that I need to read. You're on that list, but you know, get in line and then it's like take me off of your list i never want to be considered at your company i'm like wow are you serious what does that even mean (laughs) i know this is like a colleague of mine sent out an email that the subject line read cancel my email and sometimes i just want to be like cancel my subscription to this crazy person unsubscribe yes yeah well that's good advice so don't be entitled don't come in with an ego be respectful and sincere, but also specific and understand they specifically know that you're interested in a certain kind of material and they think they have that. It's not just like general blast out. Exactly. Because if you're specific, I think that you're going to have a better response and that person will be flattered that you're going into it well-educated. But that also translates to how you're going to view your career, right? Where you're just like, I want to meet a bad robot, but I write rom-coms. But I don't Mm. know if bad robot's going to make a rom-com anytime soon, but I'm just like, be smart, be well-educated. Like, where do you want to be represented and where do you want to be working? 
Well, speaking of, do you feel there are any common misconceptions about managers, especially coming from new writers? <laughs> I use Entourage as uh, the prime example in terms of the misconception of like, we are not E, but we also are E. Like in so much as the clients that I represent were very friendly. And so it's as if we're close friends. And when we work well together, there's a synchronicity that is profound. And so I think often the misconception is that one, I don't need a manager or I need an agent first. And it comes in a place of managers will help curate your career in such a way to present you well so that agents can come to you. And if you start making money, then that conversation will happen. But the misconception of it can just be a friend that I can call occasionally, but there's so much value in management that I think is overlooked and it's not just talked about enough. There's a loyalty with management that oftentimes you see that someone who has a manager has probably had that person since the beginning of their career. You know, you're an overnight success after 10 years, oftentimes <laughs> writers. And that means that there was someone who believed in you and someone who was excited about you. And that person tends to be a manager type. There are agents that are manager type and producers that are manager types that are just like willing to be there, either holding hands, being an unlicensed therapist, <laughs> any part of being a manager. So the misconception is just so much that I don't need one. Why would I want to give 10% to that person? And if it's not my friend, then, you know, is it going to be worth my time? And while I was joking that like, E uh, from Entourage, when you work well together with someone and you're talking to them every single day, you're going to develop a friendship and a professional, it's a professional marriage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that professional marriage, can you go into a little bit more detail about your process of how you like to work with your clients and sort of build plans for their careers, develop their material? Let's say you signed someone yesterday. What's the next step? I love asking the question to the client that I signed, what movie and what TV show have you seen in the past five years, whether it's on the air or got canceled, that you wish that you wrote? It is funny because more often than not, their sample does not match up to the answer. <laughs> And it's because they feel maybe a little uncomfortable. There's this thing of like, I don't know if I can write that. As your manager, I'm like, I believe in you. Let's do this. Let's get into the grit of getting you outside of your comfort zone. And it could be that you're just a fan of that genre and we might fall short. But the talented writers, they can write that. But because they're fans, sometimes they can't see the trees through the forest. So that's usually the first phone call of the strategy of what should you be writing next? So that tends to be sort of in tandem with what should you be writing next is the who should you be meeting. Oftentimes, the water bottle tour is general generals, uh, the power of the general, which is so much of who are your fans and what are they doing? And do you fit into that branding? It's funny because sometimes there'll be executives that have worked at a company for a very long time and they're going to stay there for a very long time. And other executives who are moving around a lot just because they too are figuring out what companies are supporting the kind of taste that they have. So I will introduce my clients to people and they happen to work at companies. Sometimes there's a great synergy that the company and the people align. And other times it's like a sci-fi company, but the executive is a huge fan of comedy. And so it's the sense of like, I'm aware of the people that are reading and what they're excited by. And that's my job, right? I'm networking constantly to find what people like and what I should be sending them. So that it's very much two prong about building up that career and then wanting to understand what 
the writer wants from their career. Do they want to be a showrunner? Do they want to be staffed? Is it two-pronged? Do they want to be developing? Are they ready to develop? And oftentimes it's like, you it's going to take a long time to get there. So how do we get creative? And how do we make sure that you're at least working? If you don't get staffed, how are you working toward that goal to get staffed? What was it from the past staffing season that didn't get you the job that you wanted? Was it your sample? Was it the fact that you didn't build out your network? And so kind of building up that strategy to fill in the gaps. On average, how long would you say it takes for a developmental client to kind of like, quote unquote, break in and really start getting work from once you sign them or? Ooh, that's tough. Because sometimes I'll sign clients who have been staffed and then they don't get picked up. And it's a matter of, I don't think the first job is the hardest to get. I think the second job is the hardest to get. But in the maybe under two years that I have been working, it's very much a three-month to six-month period if you have the right sample. But a lot of developmental clients who are like, I really want to write sci-fi, but here's just my crime drama. It takes time to develop that new piece of material to get them to where they want to be. As I said, like then there are creative opportunities of you know, your credit is a family credit. Is it about taking another family job while you write your horror? I have a client that's staffed on a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for Nickelodeon, but we signed him off of a serial killer script. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, what he's writing next, I'm like, this is the purge in tone, you know, from the the staff writer of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comes, you know, the world's next, like, torture porn. Obviously, people will be putting in their own work even before that and working on their writing before they even get signed by you. So yeah. it's not a, a easy or a quick process. Right. There's no guarantee. And I think to the the industry ebbs and flows in terms of what their demands are and what their aspirations are in terms of the incoming writers. So speaking of formats and genres, do you feel there's a difference between selling a, a TV writer who works more than half hours versus one hour? And is there a difference between TV and feature writers? Well, for me personally, I love the writer that wants to work in both worlds just because of how the there's a fluctuation in terms of sometimes there's more work in features and what with the season of if I'm just focused on staffing, does that mean for six months of the year, you're I'm just not doing anything for you? Um, so during that period, are you writing a feature? Are you working on a web series? Like how are you working toward your career to just, I think, continue your craft? You know, half hours and hour longs when you're looking at the marketplace, dramas really thrive internationally. Comedies often don't travel that well. And you have to look at it from the business standpoint of, okay, what do these studios ultimately want to do? They want to sell globally. But there's a very interesting time for half hour writers who are kind of the broad city types, these creators that are triple threats. Um, and they, can thrive in so much as they can start creating their own content and letting it live online and finding an audience and then translating that. And you're seeing that a lot with the influencer community and that digital generation that's coming through. But oftentimes that digital generation still wants to find a home in traditional television. Mm. So there's an interesting transition right now for managers sort of from an like an older generation who are navigating the YouTube reds, the full screen and those digital players in terms of what is their appetite and what is that demographic. So half hours 
are falling into a funny place in terms of like, can that be broken up into 10 by 10s for the digital space because of the sense of humor? Why do you feel those people are still attracted to more linear forms of TV? Because there were fans of it, you know, and it's what they know. And I think what they ultimately, that's part of the water cooler talk of what are you watching? And it tends to be half hours in the digital conversations on forums for digital content. Like, I think that's where the chatter is happening. But when you go out to a bar, it's very rare to be like, so what YouTube star influencer show are you watching? It's more of, oh, what creator driven show are you watching on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or even traditional TV? So yeah, it's, they're going back to what they already know, but there's going to be a point where there's going to be like a shift. There's this generation that doesn't understand the term online because for them online is all the time. There's no offline to them. But for us, it's like you can turn on the TV and appointment viewing also is a strange thing for them because they have access to TV all the time. So as a manager, how often are you in communication with your clients? Are you on the phone every day? Like how much is too much? How much is too little? Oh, that's a tough question for me because I love talking to my clients. When my clients get staffed, I miss them so much because I just want to be talking to them all the time about what they're watching, what they're excited by, what they want to be writing. So when they're writing, they're like, I'm doing, leave me alone. Like I need to write. (laughs) There's no, I don't think there's no such thing as too much, but there's such thing as too little because if there's a client that I don't interface with enough, I'm just like, how am I representing this person? I think that dialogue is very important and to nurture that relationship and to get a better sense of, in terms of who they are. There are some clients I talk to every day, some clients I talk to every week, and sometimes it just is on a case-by-case basis, right? Like there's an opportunity that comes up and then I give them a ring. But we're constantly either through the meetings that I'm setting for them or through projects that I'm setting up, still continuing that dialogue. It really depends on the client as well. How does that relationship kind of change when that writer is on staff? And I'm especially curious to know how you sort of balance the the need for them to do well in that staffing job versus generating new materials to maybe develop further. When a client is staffed, for the most part, I don't hear from them because they should be busy and they're they're working. But there's always a conversation before they get into the room of, okay, what happens when you get out of the room? If it's about, it depends on the writer. Can you be writing your own material while you're in the room? Or are you going to sort of separate the two and you can only be focused on what the room is demanding of you? Then when you get home, you're not going to be writing. And look, being in the room exhausts a lot of your creative juices. So I can understand that maybe that's not the best time to be writing. But it's often thinking long term. So if someone is staffed on a show, we're still, I would still like to continue the dialogue of what's next. Is it about writing that feature? Is it about developing their pilot? And those writers are so much stronger once they've had that experience in terms of what is expected for a show to last. So in one particular instance, a client wrote a pilot. We went out to market. She got staffed on a show. Now that she's staffed on the show, she has a better understanding of what she wants from her audience in a way in terms of participation and attention. So that is affecting how she's developing and also what she wants to be working on next. So there is a the onus is now on me to find those opportunities for her to thrive. Uh, so aside from featuring TV writers, uh, you also work with people who come from sort of playwriting backgrounds or maybe novelist backgrounds. How is that different? And what's that like? Oh, uh, I 
definitely represent a lot of playwrights. I think it's about a fourth or a third of my roster right now. Mm. There is a fun adventure when it comes to playwrights <laughs> because their dialogue is impeccable. There are two people or more in a room and that's all you have. So how do you keep the attention of the audience? So the challenge always becomes, so you want to write for TV or you want to write for features. How do we get you out of the space of you're stuck to one scene or stuck to one location? And also trying to get them to think beyond the budget because a lot of playwrights where it's like, we're going to make this for nothing. I'm going to try to make this the most inexpensive play so that it can hopefully find life. So that's, I think, a lot of the fun adventure of getting the the elasticity of the writer to kind of like expand and have them see the flexibility. And encourage them to be more visual with their storytelling as well? Or? Yes. There was one playwright in particular where I was like, you should write action lines. I don't know where I am in the room. <laughs> Because playwrights give a lot of freedom to their directors. Every production is going to be different. So they don't want on the page to dictate something that a, a director would be bristled by. And so when you get them into transitioning for film and television, it'd be like, no, 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 you have to tell the person. Oftentimes the person who's reading might be lazy and doesn't want to think about where they want these characters to be. They need you to tell them. So there's that challenge. Do you ever use their plays as samples for staffing? Yes. Yes. Do people it's respond the to best, that? It's the best way to get people excited. First of all, plays tend to be a lot shorter. So people are like, <laughs> yes, a one-act play? I'm so excited. And the dialogue is riveting. Especially in television, there is a high demand for playwrights because they know how to write dialogue. I remember what I wanted to say about playwrights and why I love working with them is that they are not precious with the words on the page. Being a playwright and working in the theater world, it's all about workshopping. It's about understanding the actors and understanding the directors and being a part of this collaborative process. Oftentimes I find that screenwriters who have been, you know, even if they're properly trained and have gone to school and been part of writers groups, because the experience is so much about them in front of their computer or typewriter or however you like to write, but you don't have that workshopping element, there tends to be this reticence of like, no, 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 but I really love this scene or I really love this character. And I'm like, it doesn't service the story. Playwrights, they make my life so easy <laughs> when it comes to this isn't landing. Okay, cross it off. Onward we go. Because they understand that that note is coming from a particular place or we have a productive dialogue because they're trained in that skill of like how to talk about a problem. And I love, love sending plays as samples because it gets people so excited. I'm so sure it's just nice for them to read something different than all the scripts yes. coming across the desk. Yes, yeah. definitely. Every one of our listeners should be writing one I play right now. <laughs> Going back to Circle of Confusion, Circle of Confusion is both a management company and a production company. So could you talk a little bit about how that works and how the literary managers kind of synergize with the producers and executives? So you will find that a lot of management companies have production arms. Circle of Confusion is very special in so much as what we produce isn't exclusively what our clients are writing. It tends to be a conversation in so much as we're client first. And this company started as a management company first and foremost. And it's because the question always becomes, is Circle of Confusion a value add to this particular project? Do we make sense as producers? And having that dialogue with the client to say to them, you know, like, this is why we would be great for your project. The manager turned producer, you know, you're wearing a lot of different hats. 
Because as a manager, you're thinking of your client's best interests. And as a producer, you're thinking about the project's best interests. So some producers will be put in a position with their clients where they need to put on another writer on their client's passion project. So that can get really complicated. So Circle has sort of this division in the management and the production side so that there are producers that are, are there for the projects and the managers can kind of wear each hat as they see fit. When are they fighting for their client and having that dialogue with the producer to express the client's interests and also talking to the client as a producer in terms of what is best for the project. So Circle of Confusion, as of earlier this year, we are excited to announce that we have a joint venture with ITV. So we have Circle of Confusion Television Studios. And, you know, the appetite right now is for one hour premium content that can live on streaming services or even cable. And it's very much to fall under our Circle of Confusion brand. We have The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead. Outcast was previously on the air. And we've had a couple of pilots go into production that are sci-fi genre and genre bending, but they're really much so focused on voice. So that's been great for us as a company in terms of looking at our client roster and be like, what material do we want to see made that maybe can't be made in the traditional sense of like plugging it into the more traditional studios and independent television studios have more flexibility, what with the money that they have and development money to just work on the material. What do you feel is kind of the difference between those pieces of content? In the sense of like the hour long premium versus... Uh, hour long that live online versus more linear content. So when I think about the difference between the shows that live on cable and even shows that live on broadcast versus the shows that are living on streaming, it's just how people are consuming the content and in what ways they're consuming the content. When House of Cards was released, there was something really urgent about having to binge watch that show. And at the beginning, and this is very much in the genesis of Netflix, getting into the TV game you had to watch the entire season, I think, within a week or else you were going to be caught in spoiler alert mania. (laughs) And with appointment watching, that spoiler alert, and you see it with Game of Thrones, for instance, where it's like there also is an urgency that you need to watch it Sunday at 10 o'clock or else the next day you're going to realize that you made a mistake. You know, you shouldn't have gone to the movies. (laughs) Um, There's this urgency with appointment viewing and I think like a sophistication with appointment viewing, but because streaming services also have a lot of like liberties in terms of the type of content and they're not restricted by the like network that they're on in terms of whether it's the quality control or censorship, they can kind of really push the boundaries in terms of what is what is being talked about. And so you kind of look at broadcasts like a show like American Crime, which is it is having an incredible discussion about things that are polarizing. But if you were to have American crime on FX or on Netflix, I think that there would be opportunities for the writers to put either visuals in or even dialogue in that they wouldn't have that same liberty in in broadcast. Mm -hmm. But what is exciting is across the board, looking at the demographic and the audiences that are watching all of that content, because they're not so divided. You still have people who watch SVU and then they watch the Americans and then they watch <laughs> Glow. It's kind of seeing people at a buffet and looking at what they're what they're getting and it's eclectic and it's awesome. Isn't that the perfect double bill? SVU and Glow back to back. <laughs> so you mentioned that you guys don't necessarily attach to produce everything your clients are writing. 
what kind of tips that decision for you as to whether you are the right people to be producing that or not? For me personally, I know that I'm not the right person to produce something because I have only been in this industry for five years. So when it comes to particular projects and aspects where I know that I can contribute in a producerial sense, I will raise my hand. There was an instance where a client was comfortable with the idea of Circle of Confusion producing something and wanted me to be part of that conversation because I understood her vision and could help her understand how you execute that vision. And so that was very exciting to be a part of that conversation in terms of even though I didn't have the experience that I personally feel like I need to get a project to where it needs to be, she still wanted me there. So it's a really cool synergy in that sense. But the value add just comes from like our experience in terms of the types of budgets that we've done and the types of material that we do. There's a project that we have that a zombie project. But what's cool is it's Juno meets Zombieland. <laughs> uh, and so I'm like, Circle of Confusion had just had a movie that they produced premiere at South by Southwest called Mayhem. And it was very bloody, very gory, low budget, but looked high budget and was high concept. And so I'm like, Circle is the right place for this particular project that I represent. And in other times, I'm like, maybe a more experienced producer in terms of a larger scale budget for a feature would be great. But because I'm close to the producers and the partners who are producing and understanding the ambition that they have, I can have a dialogue with the client and vouch for the company and how they can be a value add because we're resourceful and it's just exciting that we like to think in unconventional ways. Do you have any advice for TV writers looking for representation? We have been talking about samples that are disruptive, samples that are clutter busting. And so I would say to a TV writer that if they're writing what they envision as sort of their, the flag that they fly that is like, this is me, my advice to them is to write something that is disruptive and unconventional because that is the really in a world in which I need to be reading what, 30 scripts a week just to keep my head above water, that is what's going to get people excited. And that willingness to be like, yes, I want to read this Western mutant musical, <laughs> which is a script that I represent. You know, like that is what it is my advice to getting representation is writing the unconventional and exciting those people to really want to stand by you. So what is hip pocketing for those people who don't know? it? Is that a practice that you tend to do or how does that kind of work? I personally don't hip pocket. I feel that if I'm excited by someone, I want to be committed to them. But if I'm playing this game of like trial and error to see like, where are they going to land? Are they going to get staffed? Am I just going to have occasional conversations with them and I'm half committing to them? It's not as exciting. And so I think that if that hip pocketing as a term is so much as someone is tracking you, someone is having a dialogue with you and they are waiting for you to essentially start making money. And at that point, they commit to wanting to represent you. And I'm just like, for me, it's never been about the money, which my bosses will be mad if I, <laughs> because I said that out loud. I am in the fortunate position that the money comes after the fact. But why I love management is I'm at a company that sees the value in representing people before they hit big and are there to guide them to hit big. So hip pocketing just feels really bastardizes that excitement. And uh, I guess on the opposite end of that, can you talk a little bit about 
the point you reach where maybe you're letting go of a client or a client is moving on from your management? Yes. It's very important to talk about what it's like to break up with your professional marriage. Um, <laughs> so let me talk about clients firing their representation. I have been fired and I know I will get fired in the future. It tends to come from a place where the writer feels that the expectations that they set for me or their representatives are not being met. And those people who have fired me, especially now in hindsight, I understand. But sometimes I'm like, you're being short-sighted. Like I, I get a little bit bitter about it. In particular, it'll be people who thought that in a year they were going to get staffed and they fire me. And then now they're left with no representation and they don't have that kind of spokesperson for them. So they're left alone. Like at one point they had someone that was like excited for them getting meetings that they needed to be had. There was one person in particular that fired me because they're not getting the meetings where they wanted to be met. And I was like, I sent your material there. Those people chose not to meet with you. If you want to punish me for that, that's fine. But that is a reflection on yourself in so much as maybe you should be doing something different. So these are the, you know, hard truths. But there are times too where it's like we thought that we were creatively in sync and also professionally on the same page. And then there comes a point where it's like you work with someone for six months and be like, our agenda's aligning or how is this person working for me? And I'm a young manager. And so sometimes they want something that I might not be able to provide and they realize that and then they let go of me. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. And then I kind of, you know, have a sad moment and then I move on because my attitude is I don't want to work with someone that doesn't want to work with me. What good does that do to anyone? And the same goes for when I'm ready to let go of someone, it's when I lose that excitement. And I I just feel that either the expectation that I had for them isn't being met. And so it's whether like I wanted them to be writing a new pilot or feature. First of all, I should never tell a client to be writing. Like they should be writing all the time. And so if they're not writing and I'm just like, well, I'm half representing you, you know, like I'm doing my part sending you out, but are you doing your part? Oftentimes where I feel like I'm not being listened to, again, it goes back to ego where I'm just like, look, if you don't know how to take notes, this is going to be hard because that might mean that you don't know how to take notes with a producer. That's a reflection on my reputation as well. If you're difficult to work with or someone who is green and starts to do things out of turn where it's like, I cold contacted the showrunner on the show that I want to get staffed on. Why did you do that? Because now you're, you want me to contact this person that I might not have a relationship with or I was cultivating a relationship with and I kind of have to fix what you've done. You stepped in it and now I have to clean it up like that. I, I don't want to be put in that position. So there are a lot of different circumstances where I feel like we're not compatible. My reputation is at stake. The company's reputation is at stake. And that's when I think it's time to part ways. So. There are those things, but I think for writers looking for representation, my advice to them is don't be desperate and just sign for the first person that is excited by you. You should go through the process of are, does their agenda line up with mine? Are they telling me what to write and it doesn't line up with what I want to be writing? And where are they in their careers? What have they done for their clients that have been in a similar situation to mine? Is that what I want? Because for me, I'm like, I want to be entrepreneurial. Let's plug you into YouTube Red or full screen or awesomeness. And they're like, I want to write for high-end FX, but I don't I don't have the sample for it, but I want you to do that for me. I'm like, well, we clearly have different understandings of what 
I want to be doing for your career, don't sign with that person just because you want to have like a company name on your script Mm -hmm. because you're going to be like, this is awkward. I need to fire them. (laughs) Save yourself the trouble. Why would you date someone that you know you're going to break up with? Do you have examples of those missteps that writers make by stepping out of bounds? There are so many mistakes that happen. I have had clients contact agents when I've told them that there's a strategy that I have in mind and they'll contact people and then I have to sort of do the follow-up. Why I don't like this is because it doesn't look like we are a team and this is a team effort together that we're communicating with one another and I think it's a poor reflection in terms of how the client is operating in that they don't trust my judgment and they're deciding to do things their own way. That said, writers are their own best advocates, so network and you know do great things, but the course correction in that is you meet an agent that you get along with, tell me and I will call them. Hey, you met with my client. Would you be open to looking at their material and having that dialogue? You have representation for a reason because you also might be putting that agent in an uncomfortable position where they feel obligated or they feel just in general like it's an invasion of privacy. So there's the contacting people, cold contacting people when you have representation. Talk to your representatives first in terms of how you should approach networking with especially established people. Sending out your material when it's not ready. If you have managers especially and you're in the process of developing, don't send out a pilot because you're quick to jump the gun about like, I just met the showrunner and they really want to read my material. And I'm like, we're still in the process of making sure that it's right. The problem with this is you have several drafts that are floating around and no one can discern which one is what you consider to be the best. Your representative and you should come to a point where you both agree. I have fired someone over this because it was driving me bananas. I would say just to conclude the like faux pas for writers and when they're doing things that I start to question the relationship, it's anything that challenges the trust. Representation is so much on the foundation of trust. And so when a client starts to do things without my knowing, I start to feel like, do they trust my judgment? And the same thing where, do I trust them to go out into the world and be a good representative for themselves? Because as they start to behave in a way that I consider green or inexperienced, that's where I'm like, well, maybe this isn't going to be the right relationship because they're not listening to me. Like a parent with a child, this kid is not listening to me and they're straying from the path and it makes it very hard to wrangle them back in and be like, okay. How much material do you expect your writers to be generating in, say, a given year? Like, is there a number you would put on pilots, features, that kind of thing that you need to be effective in your job? Yes and no. I would like to think that if you want to be staffed, you should at least have a new pilot every year. And to that point, don't just write a pilot for staffing season and deliver it in March and then expect the person to just be like, okay, I'm going to call everyone who's trying to staff all these shows with this new sample that we haven't had the chance to develop. So there's that. A writer doesn't want to write a feature. They don't have to, but I encourage it. I think it's a good exercise in terms of like honing that craft and a potential to open those avenues. But I would even say like a feature a year feels healthy, but just be writing constantly. If you want to, I had a client be like, can I write a short story? I was like, go for it. A short story is IP. A play is IP. You want to go ahead and write for a video game? cultivate that relationship because you never know if that video game is going to get adapted. You might be the first person they consider to adapt it. So, you know, just look for opportunities to 
Right. So I don't think there's a quota, but it's very much of like, be, please be constantly writing. Yeah. Is there an issue with like the freshness of material? Like you can't send out the same sample they wrote three years ago to everyone again, like all that kind of thing. For oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. When it comes to staffing, it's like, oh, I've read the sample before. And so you're just like, you want to make your clients feel fresh and relevant. But if they haven't written something new, it's just a really uncomfortable conversation to have to be like, no, 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 but they're still incredibly talented. Oh, but this is the sample that got them staffed on that show. And then they didn't return and they need to be staffed. Like, and this is their opportunity to be staffed again. And because you're honing your craft with every script that you write and every draft that you write, the importance of that is like now in each new staffing season or each new round of generals, you have a stronger sample. Uh, Someone who's just like hinging or leaning on a sample from five years ago is only going to get so far. But if they're constantly writing, they're strengthening their skill. I would be so surprised if I met someone who like had written a new script, let's say a new script every day and every script was worse than the last one. (laughs) How do you approach your own roster? Do you try to cultivate people from different formats and genres or are you kind of agnostic to that? I am agnostic. I think it's very dangerous to be like, hmm, let me look at my roster. Okay, so I have two white guys. I have two women. I have two people of color. What am I missing? Well, aside from the types of writers of genres, I have one genre of, you know, horror and sci-fi and whatever. I think that's very dangerous because then you start to, you're blinding yourself from potential clients because if anyone ever asked me like are you looking for clients yes and what are you looking for i'm like strong writers that's really it and if you can't determine what how whether they're strong or not then maybe they're not strong at all so i'm agnostic to it because if not i don't think i would have the roster that i have to this day right you don't want to take kind of like subpar writers just because they fit a slot that you're looking for and you don't want to ignore strong writers because you already have three sci-fi writers exactly exactly and especially the oh this fits a diversity quote so this person should be really easy to staff even though i don't really like their sample unhealthy relationship you don't like this person and yet you're moving in with them like i cannot like enforce this enough where if you're a strong writer it shouldn't matter like what race or what gender you are but yes i understand that there's a diversity crisis so it is wonderful to represent people with diverse backgrounds and perspectives but they have to be strong writers you know that's where i'm just like i reinforce that a lot otherwise you know why would you put mediocrity out there so for a very new writer who maybe isn't even living in la yet what do you think are some of the first steps they can do to get themselves to a place where they can find representation and start working as a writer to answer that question if you don't live in la don't feel obligated to move to la that is controversial. Yes, you should be available to take meetings, but I think half of my roster doesn't live in LA and they are working because they make the trips out to LA and through strategy, I make sure that she's meeting the people or he's meeting the people that they need to meet and then they get a job out of that. One week of meetings versus if you were living here, starving artist, and you're like, I don't like my job or I don't like the city, I'm not inspired that can really stifle the creative process. So don't feel obligated to live in LA. But if you don't live in LA, competitions are awesome. We were talking about competitions earlier. And I think too, finding ways to still network and educate yourself on what's happening in Hollywood is very important because that way you can be well-informed if you're getting on a Skype or on a call with an executive. 
this is the beauty of the internet and the beauty of sort of like 2017 <laughs> that you can access information and also be a part of a dialogue. So still trying to figure out networks and, and expand them from far away, but keep writing, keep finding ways to expose your writing and your creativity. So people like myself who are in LA can find you. And, you know, the cream rises to the top. And so you will be discovered if you're very talented and you f let people find you. What about jobs? Do you feel there's specific kind of work that helps writers? I have two schools of thought on this because I think a writer who's worked in Hollywood, you know, if you live in LA or you live in a city where you can get a job, a media job, helps you sort of understand how the sausage is made and what's expected of you and You know, when I was working on the production side at Circle, I really understood sort of the ethic that was required for a writer for a project. And even when I was an assistant, before I was a manager, as an assistant, I was seeing like the writers that were successful were the ones that were communicating. So if you're at the other end and you're seeing this firsthand and it's not your career, it's kind of nice to learn from other people's mistakes. But the other school of thought is don't take a job that gets in the way of your ability to write. Because if you're doing something where you're, you took an ad job and you're writing all the time and when you get home, you're tired and you don't want to be writing, but your dream is to write, that's already kind of like a non-starter. So it's that balance of taking a job that inspires you and allows you to be a better writer, but you still write at the same time. And is there anything in particular that beginning writers shouldn't do, like classic mistakes or missteps? I would say writing a spec script in terms of like, oh, you love the show that's on the air and you want to write a spec episode. If it's not for a workshop or for a specific like program, there's no point in it. You know, the, unless you write the best spec samples have been the one like a. The Friends episode, the one where they all have AIDS. <laughs> yes. um, and also, most recently, the Seinfeld episode, that's the 9-11 episode. Yeah, we have Billy on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Billy's great. And it's just kind of like, okay, how can you reinvent a story that people are familiar with? Like but you the, said, it's disruptive. Those things are getting people's attention. Exactly. And uh, when you're writing just a spec episode of a show, I'm just like, okay, you do a good job of mimicking. But what am I getting from your perspective and your sense of humor or even your dramatization There's not much there, just that you, you can write, and I, that's too basic. Right. Maybe it helps them learn, but it's not going to help you sell them to anyone. Exactly. Or it's not for representation, it's for exercise. Yes, yes, and that's a good way of um, sort of defining it. Before we go, do you have any resources, be it books, movies, apps, websites, anything that, that you would recommend for our listeners? All right. My piece of advice when it comes to what can you consume, you need to consume the good, the bad, and the ugly, especially if you're a writer. If you want to write a multicam and you're a fan of one particular show and you hate another show, make it through a couple of episodes of a show that you hate. Write down why you hate it. And I would say, you know, the writers, if you're Reading Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, anytime a script is sold, find that script. It's the internet. It's 2017. You have a network or you should find a way to read it because you need to understand what's selling out there. So I know that I'm not being very specific, but it's so much as like, what's the appetite of the marketplace right now? What are the trends? And if you can read those scripts, you can also see, you can see their voice on the page and just seeing why people are excited by those people. The same thing when the blacklist comes out, the hit list comes out, young and hungry list, familiarize yourself with the generation that you're, you want to be a part of and develop relationships with those people if you can. 
And there's this book called Musts, Maybes, and Nevers by David Picker. It's a book about market trends and what to produce. And I think producers read that book. And I think writers should be reading what producers are reading (laughs) because it's like, how are they thinking about projects that are exciting them? And I would read The Operator, the David Geffen biography, and even Ovitz's biography, because learning about the people who built the representation business will help you gain insight in terms of who mentored this generation of representatives. There's also a documentary about David Geffen that everyone should watch because he was a guy that was in the music industry. And then you have him transition into real like representation. And what does that mean for talent and writers and the agencies before they became the agencies that they are today? And Entourage just because. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. So we want to, as always, thank our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 59. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews will help us attract more listeners and more cool people like you. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. What's your Twitter, Danielle? Oh, it's Daniela, G-A-R-B-R-C-E-K. And uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions about, I guess, management, or <laughs> definitely not additional questions about it getting a rep. But anyway, you can send anything you want at askipaperteam.co. And what are we doing next week, Nick? Next week, we're going to be taking a look at tone in your writing for your TV pilots and setting that and exploring it and how it affects the world and everything else. It's going to be dark and gritty. <laughs> <laughs> or lighthearted and blue sky. We'll see. See you and next week. See you then. <laughs>